It is Bronze of Modern Gods. I'm John. And I'm Richard. And welcome, everybody. You've got us right here. If you're not following us on Facebook and Instagram at Bronze of Modern Gods, we are beseeching thee to please do so. If you like this video, you know the deal. Hit the like, hit the subscribe. <laughs> and we've got a lot today. We've got our hot book of the week, underrated books of the week. What was this move I just did? I don't know what that was. Um, yeah, time out. I don't know. We also have part two of our extensive interview with Mile High Comics founder Chuck Rosansky. But before we get started on everything, but first, let's have a live sale, Richard. What do you say? Why not? This Friday, February 4th at 8 p.m. Eastern, 5 p.m. Pacific. Join us at Bronze and Modern Gods on our Instagram uh, profile, I guess you would call it. Yes. Instagram page with the kids call it. Instagram page is not really a page. It's a profile. Well, we're going to go live on Instagram this Friday, February 4th, 8 p.m. Eastern, 5 p.m. Pacific. Tons of new stuff. I've got a bunch of uh, Mexican variants. Uh, a bunch of Star Wars stuff, uh, and you know me, my regular oddball Western romance stuff as well. Richard, what are you bringing to the yard? Uh, a whole bunch of stuff. You know me, I like my moderns, so I've got a bunch of those and maybe a surprise or two. All right, speaking of moderns, let's hit our hot book of the week. Richard, what is it? Hot book this week is Black Panther number three. The first appearance of, oh, you're going to make me do this, uh, Tozen Odoye. There you go. <laughs> uh, people are heralding him as the next potential Miles Morales. Yeah, uh, there are a lot of choices from this past week. Uh, this one's kind of coming out on top. Uh, this came out last Wednesday, and raw copies are already selling from anywhere from 15 to 25 bucks on eBay. But the real money is that one in 25 variant that's on your screen right now. That sucker, the low price is 300 bucks, high price $600 in less than a week, Richard. I I you know I I don't know. I I would love for this character to be as impactful as Miles and therefore, you know, generate the same kind of numbers as that Miles does. I I just don't see it. I I see it even at best you know, being an important character in Wakanda, but not necessarily in the bigger MCU. Uh, well, let's let's parse this out. All right, Chadwick Boseman no longer with us. Uh, Miles kind of replaced Peter Parker in a whole generation's eyes. This one I can kind of maybe see. Uh, Black Panther, the character and the property is in between movie cycles. Okay. Uh-huh. So as a result, the regular monthly is not doing gangbusters. You know, it's not selling the way it used to. It's always been a tough sell, honestly. So orders are not what they used to be. So this one in particular may truly actually be scarce like ultimate fallout four was let's go back to 2011. The ultimate universe was on its last legs. They were wrapping it up. No one cared anymore. Orders were, not as healthy as they once were. That's why Ultimate Fallout 4 sells for so much money. There's not a lot of them out there. Uh, This case, the 1 in 25. This is the question I always ask myself when something like this hits. Who's ordering 25 copies of Black (laughs) Panther 3 in 2022? Right. So I don't know. No, I agree with you. I mean, scarcity is there, I I believe. Um, The question is... I was talking to a friend of mine just today about the difference between speculation and investment. Oh, this sounds familiar. 
<laughs> this is a speculative buy. If you're no. going to pick up this book, um, you're taking a chance. You're taking a strong chance that something is going to happen with this character and that's going to make this book important. It may not. It may end up being a character that just has its moment in the sun and then disappears. You know, we, we really just don't know at this point. There is no, there is no uh, appearance in the MCU or anything or a movie to, to say that it's going to be more than it is. It took Ultimate Fallout 4 10 years to get mm-hmm. that traction. So who knows? Am I going to spend $600 on this? No, yeah. no. Yeah. But if I see a copy floating around somewhere, the regular copy, you know, for 10 or 15 bucks, I might buy one. I'd buy this for double ratio. I, I, I really would. I, I, I think uh, maybe three times ratio, maybe. But anything more than that, I, I'm, I'm just going to wait. I'm kicking myself, uh, which I think a lot of people are right now, because there were a bunch on the shelf when I went in last Wednesday, and I went, oh, Black Panther, doopy-doopy-doopy-doo, you know, and <laughs> walked over and bought my other stuff. So uh, you just you don't know what's going to blow up. For some reason, this Tosin guy is, is resonating with some people. Uh, mm-hmm. So I haven't read it. You haven't read it. Maybe it's good. I'll have to get a digital copy and see. Who knows? Yeah, we'll see. We'll see. I, I think it's... I am always suspect of any book that is worth $600 the day it hits the newsstand. <laughs> that I have an issue with, but, uh, you know, we'll see. All right. Our main topic today is our returning guest, who, of course, opened his first comic book store in Boulder, Colorado in 1974. Many years later, he is an industry leader, instrumental in helping create the direct market for comic books. That allows comic shops to purchase directly from the publisher. In fact, we're going to cover a bit of that today. Everything from what a Whitman truly is. Was it a reprint? Was it an early direct edition version? We're going to clear that up once and for all. To how much of the print runs were for direct market copies at the beginning of the direct market in 1979. So first, we're going to go back to Chuck's discovery of the legendary Edgar Church collection for some more insight. So here is part two of our interview with Mile High Comics' Chuck Rosansky. Roll that beautiful bean footage. Knowing what we know now about people and psychology and and what drives people, do you think Edgar Church was a hoarder? Oh, yeah. Yeah, Church was a hoarder. But bear in mind that he was a hoarder with a purpose because he wanted to be a comic book creator, and he actually created original comic book art. And uh, he was moonlighting as a commercial artist so he took a job just before the great depression got really ugly so i think he took his job around 1922 um and then he retired around 1952 and what he did was he was the very first artist for the entire western region of the bell telephone system the initial yellow pages. So if you ever see an old yellow pages on eBay from Billings, Montana or Cheyenne, Wyoming or Phoenix, Arizona, they all have Edgar Church art in them. They all have illustrations that Edgar Church did because what he would do is he would create um, an ad, really beautiful Art Deco ad with some of the best lettering fonts I have ever seen. And Church would then um, do... Uh, what were, I think, I don't know if they were called them V-Loxes in those days or not, but they were photo reproductions 
And so he would do them for a coal company that was in Denver. But then they would use the same ad for a coal company in Billings, Montana or in Phoenix or whatever. And uh, so he created these um, sort of templates that they used in all the Yellow Pages all around the region to to sell ads. Um, I have one piece that uh, I couldn't sell for Heritage where he actually did a piece of art for the local chapter of the Ku Klux Klan wow. here in Denver. Um, you know, that uh, I don't think that he had anything to do with them. There's There was no evidence whatsoever in any of his files or archives of, of any affinity for uh, uh, any kind of racism or anything like that. The, the, the reality, though, was that he paid for his comics with his art because mm-hmm. the way that it worked he was married twice. He had uh, uh, one child with a previous marriage and then a child with his uh, second wife. And uh, so he was paying for the family and the child support with his money from the phone books. Mm-hmm. That was his day job. But then at night, he was drawing also for anybody and everybody who would who would do things. And he was also trying to sell things like magazine covers. So some of the art that I turned over to Heritage included magazine covers and things of that ilk. Um, but his goal was to try and make money so that he could pay for his comic books. Because here's the thing that most people don't realize. Edgar Church actually invented the concept of pull and hold. Really? So really? everybody right now thinks about going in and getting their comics on a on a weekly basis. Right. Well, Edgar Church knew that Action Comics number one was coming out because he probably saw the ads. He had um, Detective Twenty Seven and things like that that were that were prior, and some of the detective issues, um, New Comics, which later became New Adventure, and then Adventure later on. Um, he had a lot of those early DCs that he bought used through a uh, two-for-one swap shop that was over by the state capitol in in Denver. But the copy of Action Number 1 that I got with the church collection actually had his name penciled on it. Very, very tiny letters up by the top left corner. Most important provenance that you could probably ask for. But what was important to me was that it meant that he had someone hold it for him. And from that point on, from that summer 1938, he had every single one in near mint. And all of his other comics ended up being near mint from that point onward. Um, So, but Church's hoarding, to go back to your original question, was so that he would have reference from which to create these incredible type fonts and these ads that he was doing during the day for the phone company and at night to try and sell to um, his clients. And bear in mind, this was during the Great Depression. So him being able to afford a, uh, you know, let's just say it was a $5 a week. No, it was more than that because he, he was probably getting, he was probably getting between 50 and 100 comics a week. Wow. And that must not have set well with his family, to be honest with you. Even though that was his night job and his pin money that he was earning himself, um, I got the distinct impression from, from his, 
his heirs that they were not happy with that, um, that they wish he wouldn't have pissed all of his money away. Um, I don't think Church felt that way. And Church did accompany his daughter on a trip. Um, she was a baton twirler, and she got a, a school baton twirling thing to go to New York City. Well, he actually went to New York with his portfolio with all of his comic art in it. And his comic art was, um, if you look at like the Chesler comics from 1938, 39, Star Comics, Star Ranger, things like that, his art could have fit into those books easily. But there was no FedEx in those days. It was no. really hard to work outside of New York City if you were going to be in the comic book industry. Mm -hmm. And then, not to put too fine a point on it, but um, it really helped in those days to have connections. And most of the connections in the comic book industry were Jewish. And so if you weren't Jewish and if you didn't live in New York City, you had two strikes against you. And if then if your style wasn't, you know, evolving and magnificent, because his style was was equal to 1938 and 1939 really well. But by the time he was going into New York City, people like Will Eisner had just elevated oh, things yeah. to an entirely new level. And, and, and guys like Lou Fine and the whole quality crew. And even if you took a look at some of the uh, Bernard Bailey on 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 uh oh gosh it just went out of my head um but if you're if you're looking at all the different comics that were being done oh the specter that's what i was thinking of. Yeah. if you're looking at all the comics that were being done they were evolving and they were getting better and better and better the the um you know captain america when he started out was a little crude but then kirby kept improving and improving yeah. and improving and these guys were driving each other to get better Meanwhile, Church was stuck in 1938-1939 doing cowboy strips that had kind of the, the kind of yucky, uh, yucks kind of stories. Uh -huh. And uh, that just wasn't going to sell. And so um, Church really was brokenhearted that he couldn't actually create comics. But all those files that they were putting out for the trash men to haul away were theft files, essentially. And I don't mean theft in a bad way. They, yeah. You couldn't go onto the internet and get pictures of bluebirds like you can mm -hmm. today. So he had an entire box that was labeled birds. Yep. And in there, there'd be pictures of bluebirds and robins and thrushes and God knows what. And uh, he, he legitimately used those to, to advance his art. And so um, his family, though, really resented the fact that in their beautiful little craftsman home that the entire basement was wall-to-wall -wall boxes of stuff that he had accumulated. And I do think that he was a hoarder. I do concur. But he was a hoarder in the way that I'm a hoarder, in the sense that I don't need 10 million, 12 million, 14 million, 16 million comic books like I own. Um, but I like having them. And I put them in order, and they are a working file for me that I sell out of. I just sell slowly and reluctantly and buy way more than I sell. Um, <laughs> and, uh, you know, if that's going to be my greatest sin in this world, okay, I'm fine. Chris, fine. Yeah, I'm good. Worst fates. Um, yeah. Going back to your friends, I think you still have one very, uh, a very good friend that's still with us and very important in the industry, and that's Jim Shooter. Yeah. And tell us a little bit about the birth of the direct market, because as you like to say, you was there uh, and you kind of spurred it all from being controlled by fuel suling to being uh, open to dealers everywhere. Yeah, well, I think that, you know, you have to kind of go back to 
um, as Bob Bierbaum constantly rails about, you have to go back to the underground distributing and uh, the fact that they were distributing printment, for example, uh -huh. was among the first distributors. And they were out there distributing undergrounds, which got Phil busted because he was selling underground comics uh, at his show in New York uh, in 1973. And uh, they let him out in, or actually I think it was 74. But anyway, they let him out in handcuffs, um, which was really bad because he was a school teacher at the time. And so suddenly he needed to find new employment. And so he went to D.C. and said, hey, can I start selling comics um, directly to these guys that are opening up these little specialty shops? And there were very few in those days. When I opened my store in September of 74, there were maybe 20 legitimate comic shops in the country. There were a lot of used bookstores that had some comics and so on. But um, the amount of stores that actually sold new comics was pretty limited. Um, but Phil weaseled out a deal first with um, D.C., Saul Harrison and those guys. And then he went over and he managed to um, convince the guys at Marvel to start letting him sell stuff. And Phil had this insanely sweetheart deal where they would pack and ship all of his orders for him. They paid for it out of uh, Sparta, Illinois. Um, they even paid the shipping. And then um, Phil got 90 days to pay them for the books. And he was getting, I think, 65% off. And so, I mean, all of his expenses were covered for him. All he had to do was handle the paperwork, which he did incredibly badly um, because he was a school teacher. He didn't have any idea about invoices or statements or reconciliations. Um, what he knew was that because he was the only game in town, he could demand that everybody paid him with their order. And this is what really ultimately five years later led me to lead a revolt um, because um, Marvel in particular was dreadfully behind in their schedules. And this is something that um, in a recent series of interviews that, that Jim Shooter and I did, um, we talk about the fact that there were some Marvel books that were solicited and not printed for a year wow. after they had been solicited. Well, Phil had our money for that year and he was kind of the only game in town um by 1979 pacific comics had opened up um longhorn had opened up down in texas and um i think charles abar was selling in the bay area um none of them were very big except for phil phil was was really quite quite large um he had set up a system of what were called sub distributors um everybody else got 40 off from phil um so he was damn near doubling his money <laughs> everything that was being sold. Um, but the sub-distributors, myself included, got 50% off. And uh, that was good. But in, uh, the sum, or in the spring of 1979, I'm looking at this huge list. Marvel was expanding again at that point. I'm looking at this huge list of stuff that I want to order, and I can't cut a check to fill for, for what I want to order. So that means during my best period, because a lot of tourists come to Colorado in the summertime, my best period is in the summer, and I can't order the books because I'm trying to order summer books on April revenues, right. and, and I just didn't have it. And so I led this revolt where um, I found this guy's name, Bob Maiello, and I started a letter writing campaign to Bob Maiello. I got 140 other retailers and publishers in the industry to, uh, to send letters of support for me. 
And uh, that would have been a tempest in a teapot, except that I got a call from Ed Shukin. And Ed Shukin was the vice president of marketing at Marvel at that time. Or he may not have been vice president yet. He may have been marketing director. I don't know. Um, anyway, Ed called me up and said, uh, well, young man, how about if you come to New York and, uh, you know, we'll talk about this. And it's like, OK. Um, I had driven to New York a couple of times. I'd been to Suling shows, creation shows, things like that, but I'd never flown to New York. Um, and so when I looked up the flights, I was aghast and I could only afford uh, what was called a red eye in those days where I left Denver at 11 at night and I got into uh, New York at like six in the morning at LaGuardia. And then I took a cab from LaGuardia in. And mind you, I'm doing this on no monies. Um, you know, people think that after the church collection in 77, that by 79, I was rolling in it. Oh, hell no. You know, I would sell some church books, put the money into the company, it'd disappear. On a lot of it <laughs> into Phil Suling's bank account. Um, and uh, so, you know, I, I went to New York, and the reason I took a red eye, aside from the fact that it was a cheaper airfare, meant that I didn't have to spend a night in a hotel room. So I get to New York, I, I uh, go to the Marvel offices, I give the uh, receptionist, who really gave me a baleful eye when I showed up, because um, she thought I was there for a tour, um, I gave her my suitcase, which she then put behind her desk, and uh, then I went to meet um, Ed Shukin. And uh, Shooter and I have, a, have a, a differing memory of how this all went down. He thinks that after I met Shukin that I met with him, I recall that I met um, with Shukin and then Jim Galton, the president of Marvel, um, and Jim, and um, this crazy, crazy lady named uh, Nancy Allen, um, who was in charge of their advertising at that point. And uh, we had this very engaging conversation where I said, look, guys, you really have got to change this policy. And I had um, an 11-point plan. And uh, by the time I was done speaking in this, this whole series of dialogues that ended, and this, this took place over a period of about two days, and that's why my memory is perhaps off on this. I don't know. I'm willing to, to, to go with that. But anyway, over a period of two days, I had many, many discussions, the, the best of which were with Jim Shooter. Um, and he and I really hit it off because he had, um, for his own reasons, started keeping track of the sales in the direct market and had discovered that um, 6% of Marvel's total output was going to the direct market, but the best part was was that the sales were 100% sell-through, so they didn't right. have to worry about some of these cities where um, the mob guys were stealing so many books that their sell-throughs were sometimes negative. So in other words, they would ship somebody 400 books and they would claim that 500 of them didn't sell. Um, <laughs> that, that kind of crap was going on a lot in those days. The, the payola scandals that were in the record industry had nothing on the comics. Oh my God, that was so corrupt. But anyway, um, I said, you know, if you guys just give us terms, like we buy from Bantam and, and Baker and Taylor and, and all these other book companies and we get 30 day billing and maybe we don't pay exactly in 30 days, but we pay. I said, but, you know, when we're having to pay 90 days ahead of shipment to Suling and then a book is delayed nine months, then our working capital is tied up for a year. And then you wonder why we can't pay our bills. It's because our working capital is all tied up with Phil Suling and Phil never sends statements. He never reconciles. He never sends invoices. 
We have no idea what he's sitting on in our money unless we go back through every one of our orders and check off which books were actually wow. received and what, what we didn't get. And that is incredibly laborious. So long story short, um, after that meeting, they said, okay, we're going to go ahead and publish trade terms within 30 days. And they did, and every one of Phil Suling's um, sub-distributors became a Marble distributor overnight. Marble went from just having the four that I mentioned earlier to suddenly having 18 in one month. And then I think it peaked out at 21 or 22. And then it started, uh, you know, moving back down again. Um, and uh, DC eventually went along, but that was a long and ugly and really actually at the end of the day, stupid story. And DC did a lot of things that were very, very damaging to the direct market. And uh, yeah, it's the way that it was. It, I, I, I wish that things would have transpired differently because I think that had we managed to have kept at least a dozen distributors in the industry, I think that the vibrancy of the market would have been much, much greater. But, you know, then you have the stupidity of things like the death of Superman fiasco that um, really wrecked us with the general public in terms right. of perceptions of future value for comics. Um, I mean, you know, if you go back and you and you look at the history of the industry, there were so many stupid things that were done. It, it really, it makes you shake your head. I, I and again, I almost went out of business in ninety three, ninety four, ninety six. There was there was a period there um, from ninety three to ninety six. I figured it out. Um, I went a million dollars in debt. I was losing three grand a day. Wow. Heroes world. I mean, just point to heroes world. That well, that was after that. That was 97. 97? Um, it just got worse and worse and worse and worse. Oh my God. And then, and then in the middle of that shooter and I decided we were going to buy Marvel. That was, fun. <laughs> and, uh, you know, we did, Hey, we came up with $200 million. Okay. And ours was real money. Like the kind you can spend at the bank. It wasn't, you know, fake promissory notes like, like, uh, you know, they they ended up using ultimately to, to buy Marvel when when uh, we lost out um, to Ike Perlmutter. It, it was so funny because it, it was all I, I learned such cynicism about I, I always was cynical. OK, but I learned such profound cynicism about how self-serving the weasels that run banks are um, as a part of that whole Marvel bankruptcy thing, because they they were perfectly willing to take absolutely valueless promissory notes from Mike Perlmutter so that they could they could go ahead and um, get the debt off their books mm. and pretend that they'd actually been paid for it. If we if they would have taken our 200 million, they would have had to have taken a 200 million write down. Well, they weren't willing to do that. So they took 400 million dollars in funny money and then got a promotion, and moved on to another job. <laughs> and then I bought it all back for 30 cents on the dollar and ended up paying less than we offered in cash. And, and you know, you go through stuff like that and you're just like, oh, my God, this will make a great story for the rest of my life. But I'm so glad I got out of this. Yeah. I did not. Uh, once I had been through the perambulations of that. I was supposed to be the um, basically Ed Chukin's job. I was going to be the senior vice president in charge of marketing for uh, for Marvel. And uh, in the course of our discussions, one of the things that came up was that we were going to have to come up with at least 12 percent return on invested capital ROI 
um, every quarter. And that was going to mean raising prices, raising prices, and then raising prices again. And it was like, so, okay, I got to be the guy that's got to stand at the podium at San Diego Comic-Con and say, yep, we're raising prices again. Guess no, what? I think I'd really rather pass on that. I'll leave that to, you know, Ron Perlman and then Ike Perlmutter and then all the rest of those weasels. I, I just, you know, to me, growing the market does not involve making comic books to where you have to take out a bank loan in order to, to go to the comic shop. What, what, what could have been? All right. Let's get a little bit into the minutia of the direct market, the birth of the direct market. All right. Yeah. Because there's still, believe it or not, Chuck, there's controversy about this. People believe things that I think are not true, and you were there. So this is a diamond and a UPC with a strike through. Yeah. June 1979, the first books that right. are considered truly direct market books. Yes or no? Yeah, those were the first direct market books. And the reason why they put a slash through them was ostensibly because there was supposed to be some kind of fraud going on where direct market retailers were returning, like guys who were buying from Suling were supposedly returning books through ID wholesalers and making 10% on the difference, because ID wholesalers in those days would wholesale to you at a whopping 30% off. And so even the smallest guys were buying from Suling at 40% off, and the bigger guys like me were buying from Suling at 50 off. So the theory was that you could make an arbitrage profit of 20% by buying from Suling and then returning them through an ID wholesale. No ID wholesaler was that stupid. If they sold you 15 copies and you tried to return 50, they knew that. So there was an entirely different game afoot. Okay, this had way more to do with affidavit returns and the games that the ID wholesalers were playing than anything to do with any... I, I knew of no one who would ever return through an ID wholesaler and try to make money on the difference. I imagine it's kind of like the election fraud thing that that's out there from Trump. Probably somebody somewhere got his dead wife's ballot and went ahead and, and mailed it in. But those instances are going to be so rare and so far between that it's, it's absolutely inconsequential. So there was a totally different game that was going on here. And Ed Shukin at Marvel was the one who initiated this whole process of first putting the slash in and then having them put in their little different Marvel logos and things Just that they put in there. Just um, a black plate change. Pardon me? Just a black plate change at the printer. Correct. Correct. Yeah. And, um, you know, initially, and this is, this is the irony, even though they printed 15 times as many, because bear in mind there were 6% of the print run, except for X-Men, 6% right. of the average print run of Marvel Comics were um, being sold through the direct market, which meant 94% were being sold through the ID wholesalers. It makes those first direct market copies with the slash through the barcode rarer. Right. Except for the fact, and this is where you have to counterbalance, people who bought off the newsstand tended to trash their comics. 
And right. so your destruction rate on newsstand <laughs> comics was vastly higher. Right. So we try to balance that in our database and with our pricing. Um, right about 1981, 1982 is where the line gets crossed, where newsstands start becoming actually scarcer than the direct market copies. By the time you get to 89, um, at that point, the direct market was about 80, 85% of sales. Newsstand was about 15. And then by the time you get to 99, newsstand is down to 2% or so. Right. And so on our, uh, in our database, which, by the way, has become the, the overstreet for the age. I mean, it really has. And I, I say that with, with no sense of egotism or anything like that. It's just we're the only ones at this point who are actually updating prices daily and keeping track of what the changes are in the industry. We can't keep up with all the prices all the time, but we sure do a better job than, than they're doing over at Overstreet. Right. Um, you know, none of our stuff says cover price or above. Um, <laughs> or below. Or, let me rephrase that, cover price or below. Right. Um, who the hell would stock a comic for cover price or below? How can you cover your costs? Right. Anyway, um, long story short, um, we try to make sure that there's a clear understanding and we have formulas for this by year of how much a comic should be priced if it's a newsstand versus a comic that's a, uh, a direct market comic. Now where it gets weird is in grading and we don't have a formula that can take into account grading. I don't personally think that a newsstand good is less common than a direct market good because direct market copies tended to mostly be in very fine and near mint mm -hmm. whereas newsstands tended to get beat up so you're going to find a lot of those in good but how do you build that into an algorithm how do you build that into a formula i, I haven't figured out a way um, so i think where the controversy with the direct market the beginning of the direct market comes in is what you and I would probably consider Whitman's. The, the big diamond, the blank UPC, sold in three packs, distributed by Western Publishing. Right. For, for some reason, in the last 10, 15 years, there has been this growing fake news, I call it, <laughs> that these were early direct market editions that Phil Suling had access to as well. No. Thank you. <laughs> no, that's ludicrous. <laughs> no, they were they were being done under contract with Whitman, um, and they were putting them out in places like Kimmer. Um, right. So they were they, you know, I think Phil might have had access to maybe some of the ones that they would have at the plant, but so did I. Um, there was a la lady that was in charge of all shipping at the plant by the name of Nellie Gerlach, and uh, you could call up Nellie. <laughs> I have a funny story about Bill Zuling with this. You could call up Nellie, and if she had some stuff sitting around, she'd sell it to you as long as New York approved. So everything had to go through New York. They had to say yes. Okay. But the funny story with Phil, since you brought up Phil, is that uh, Phil, in reaction to the fact that Russ Ernst had opened up a warehouse in um, Collinsville, Illinois, about 50 miles from Sparta, decided that he was going to do Russ one better and open up, up in Sparta. So at this point, uh, Marvel and DC had stopped packing and shipping for him. So he packed and shipped out of Sparta 
and uh, actually engaged in air freighting against Russ Ernst. That was stupid. Um, but I went, um, I don't know the exact date, but it was the, the day that Mount St. Helens blew up um, because I flew through the ash cloud to get to St. Louis. And then I rented a car and I drove out to Phil's warehouse um, in Sparta and I knocked on the door. And uh, the guy that um, was the manager of the warehouse wasn't there. Um, but the assistant manager, who was this really nice lady that they had hired from um, Sparta, longtime Sparta family, um, I told her, I, you know, I know Phil, I've been at his house, and um, I just wanted I'm in here to take a look at things. And uh, so she showed me all around their facility and showed me exactly what they were doing and how they were doing it. And uh, this was not something that made Phil or Johnny happy because they found out about it later and when I came back in the afternoon, she said, oh, I talked to New York, and they said, you can't come back in again. It's like, uh, yeah, fine. Okay, so then I go over to uh, Sparta and uh, talk with my friend Bob Craig, who was in charge of production. And uh, by the way, who, Phil introduced me to Bob Craig and Nellie Gerlach. So, um, and then I went over to see Nellie. And uh, when I'm talking to Bob Craig, one of the things that I noticed was that they had a ton of uh, X-Men 137 boxes. Remember that? Remember X-Men 137, Death Phoenix, all that kind of stuff. Okay, they had a ton of them sitting there. And uh, I said, Bob, I said, those are really hot right now. I said, are those available? He said, well, they're overstocks. He said, but you got to talk to Nellie. So I went and I talked to Nellie. I said, Nellie, I want to buy those X-Men 137s you got sitting out there. He said, well, let me call New York. And so I got on a plane and uh, flew back home and... Uh, Got a call from Nelly, and Nelly said, New York said, fine, you can have them. And uh, I don't remember the exact number. It was eight or 9,000 copies. And uh, <laughs> uh, that book had a 75-cent cover price, so I got them for 30 cents each. So it was a big investment. I mean, 9,000 copies, 2,700 bucks. That was real money. Um, <laughs> but uh, I got 9,000 copies, and I, and I uh, put them in um, my inventory. And uh, I actually still have just like five copies left. Um, nowadays I get like 300 bucks for them, but, um, I sold them forever and a day for three to $5. But here's the thing. Remember I told you about Phil's shitty accounting. Yes. Right. Those were Phil's X-Men 137s. Oh no. <laughs> they were supposed to have noticed that they got shorted on X-Men 137. Oh. They didn't. By the time they figured it out and called up Nellie and said, hey, where are our X-Men 137s? They were on a truck. <laughs> now, I didn't find this out until six months later because Phil was so prideful. There was no way that he would ever admit to me, Chuck, you got my X-Men 137s. Can I have them back? He didn't ask. Honest to God, this is the God's honest truth. I really like Phil. And if he would have asked me, I would have sent him back. I would have shipped them to him. At 150 a unit. <laughs> that I didn't know. Um, and it just seemed the damnedest thing to me that they, of all the books to overprint, that they had overprinted that one. Now, bear in mind, as far as they shred books all the time. Yeah. So oh, that's, um, that's horrible. You know, that's when Sparta was standing. So they had some of the worst employees there. Jesus, God. That place was union. And normally I'm, I'm very much in favor of labor movements and unions and yeah, they had the worst employees, killed the company. Um, they ended up um, demolishing, they had five plants, they demolished all the plants, went wow. out of business, 
sent those people back to milk cows because that's the only other thing. Well, you can work in the coal mine or milk cows. That's Southern Illinois. That's all you can do. Wow. Crazy. Well, guess what? We're going to have a part three next <laughs> week. He's a fount of information. He's got so much knowledge. We wanted to take advantage of that, ask him everything, try to, to tap his brain until all we got was dust, and we didn't quite get there. No. Oh, no. I, I have a feeling there's there's a whole more lot left on the table that we haven't discussed yet. Yeah. I mean, this guy has seen it all. He's been a, he's been part of everything, every major event, even as oh, a 25-year-old. Here we go. <laughs> <laughs> you know, sometimes the transitions just don't flow. Yeah, the man called Stanley Stan. Okay, so exactly. Uh, the twenty-five year rule this week is a book near and dear to my heart. Something very uh, a re that, that I loved a lot, resonated a lot with me, and it makes me feel very old. Uh, twenty-five year rule this week. Thunderbolts number one, 25 years ago. Oh, seriously, 25 years ago? Can you believe that? Oh, I, I mean, I literally remember buying this off the shelf uh, at Reality Recess in Amherst, Ohio, thinking, <laughs> oh, I read a lot about this. Uh, yowza, we're old. Uh, yeah. This, of course, was the debut issue of everyone's favorite team of villains turned heroes, maybe. Sorry for the spoiler. You've had 25 years yeah, to read yeah, this. Yeah, yeah. Sorry. Um, <laughs> I, I, this was a, a, a really downtime for Marvel. Bankruptcy, really low orders. They were not launching a lot of new properties. This and Deadpool are really the only Marvel titles I can think of that started in the 1990s and continue to be published today. Am I missing any others? Nightwatch? Oh God! <laughs> Dark talk, <laughs> uh, sleepwalker. Yeah, in the comments, if you could think of another uh, major title that has continued, please post it. Let us know. Thunderbolts, man, is like Deadpool. We talked about last week. It it really struggled for years and years. It it kept going. It was always on the verge of cancellation, just right over the line of profitability. Uh, that initial run with Kurt Busiek and Mark Bagley. Man, if you have not read that, that is killer. Uh, around issue 50, Fabian Nicienza comes on with Pat Zerker. I'm massacring names today. But they kept it going uh, to issue 75. And then, you know, uh, Bill Jemis and Joe Quesada screwed the pooch uh, and rebooted it. It had nothing to do with what it was previously. It was about super boxers. Oh, yeah. Uh, yeah. That lasted a, a whopping five issues, and then it went away for a few years, but then it was revived and, and just kept going and going and going. Uh, rumors continue to swirl about the Thunderbolts joining the MCU, but who really knows what's going on? Incredible Hulk 447, which is their first appearance proper, that seems to be the key uh, Thunderbolts title everybody's gravitating to. But number one, a CGC 9.8 sold this month for 138 bucks. That is down from the 12-month average of $181, so you can take advantage of this dip right now if you don't have a Thunderbolts number one 9.8. Did you ever get into this book? Uh, I, I started off with it, and it was the, the twist at the beginning was awesome. Mm -hmm. um, and then, you know, I just didn't follow it. I, but I did buy a, a recent copy, a copy of this book recently 
for like 30 bucks, you know, it really wasn't that big. And then all of a sudden, out of nowhere, the value of this book just went through the ceiling. Yeah. But that seems to be calming down. Uh, that, that twist, a pre-internet, you know, pre-spoilers, uh, it was amazing. You got to that last page and you were like, holy <laughs> bleep, bleep, bleep. Uh, and boy, you could not not come back for issue two. Mm -hmm. to see what was going to happen. So uh, Thunderbolts number one, really just uh, kind of a landmark book for Marvel in the 90s. And Great it's, pick. It's nice to see some decent titles in the 25-year role that <laughs> two in a row that <laughs> are still going strong. All right, time for our underrated books of the week. Richard, I love it. What you got? Oh, oh my pick is, it, it was inspired by... Uh, the banning news that we had last our last show about the schools uh, in Tennessee banning uh, mouse in uh, in this comic history it run it run a Pulitzer Prize it is by far one of the most important piece of comic media out there so if you haven't read it as I said then read it now this book is kind of the polar opposite this is a, a book called Love is Hell by Matt Grenig. Uh, it is whimsical is the best way to put it. So this, this, this book is by uh, the famous Matt Grenig. Uh, he is the creator of The Simpsons. Uh, obviously, you know what The Simpsons are. If you want to see what he did before The Simpsons came out, this is an awesome, awesome uh, book. This is the first book of a, of a series of about 10 books he wrote with these characters. Uh, it's black and white comic strip. It, it was originally a, a, a comic strip in a magazine called Wet. Um, and it's just compiled and uh, in, in nice, easy to read uh, books. And I remember, I remember going to the local um, Borders books and sitting there and thumbing through this book on the, on the shelf. Walden uh, books. Walden books. Yes. Paul, <laughs> you, you, you flip through this one. Uh, uh, Linda Berry, uh, and who was the other one? Oh, Gary Larson, The Far Side. Oh, oh yes, yes. But you know, it's the the characters are 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 sensitive, and um, the storylines can tend towards pathos. But it's just really just a great great read. It's the humor you get a sense of the the way that Matt Groening uh, crafted his humor and. If you're a big fan of the early Simpsons, because I have to say the Simpsons now are, are a homogenized, pablumized version of those early Simpsons, you know, from, you know, you go all the way back to uh, the Tracy, uh, what's her name? Tracy Ullman Show. Tracy Ullman Show, right. Yeah. Tracy Ullman Show, where, where, where they... It used to be about a family, you know, right. it used to be about the family. Now it's really more about Springfield and, and, and culture. But, right, yeah. right. I think I think they've diverged. But if, if you like those early Simpsons, you, you will really, really get a kick out of these books. Uh, this is the first one. Uh, the first print is really, I, I was astounded at, at what people are asking for the first print for this book. $300 hmm. is the, and there's more than one person on eBay currently asking that for this book. Uh, I would buy the 10th anniversary print. It's nice and cheap. You can get it for 20 bucks and uh, just read it. It's, I, I, it. it's one of those safe bets. If you like The Simpsons, you will like this book. And if you like this book, um, Matt has written a number of other books uh, with uh, different characters. It's, it's just just a great read. 
I love Akbar and Jeff. Yes. <laughs> uh, all right. Good pick. Uh, my pick this week is uh, Tales of Asgard, number one. This is a one-shot from 1968 that reprints the Tales of Asgard backups from early issues of Thor's run in Journey into Mystery. All right. Who cares? Look at that cover. I love that cover. It is a classic Jack Kirby cover. In fact, it's so classic that uh, I tell the story all the time. When Ron Friends was doing a signing at the comic shop I managed in Ohio, um, he mentioned that he was looking for a copy of Tales of Asgard number one, and I had one at home. And he said, I will swap you a sketch of your choice if you go get that Tales of Asgard number one for me. So I did, and I got a really cool Ant-Man sketch uh, <laughs> in, in trade from Ron Friends. Uh, a 9.8 sold last month for 1020 bucks. Uh, I'm not sure why Marvel published this book. It was weird. It, you know, it wasn't like Thor was a huge runaway success and people were clamoring for a Tales of Asgard spinoff. My guess is they had a double size uh, issue reserved at the printer and something else fell through like an annual or something and mm. couldn't get done. So they had, they already reserved the print time. They were going to pay for it either way. So let's just assemble this group of stories and get Jack to draw a cover in 20 seconds. Like he could do. And let's get it to press. Um, is it worth a huge amount? No. Is it scarce? No. Is it a great comic to display on your wall? Hell yes. That, that cover. <laughs> yes. Tales of Asgard number one. Oh, this way, there it is. Tales of Asgard number one. Look at that. If you don't have one and you're a Jack Kirby or a Thor fan, you got to get it. Uh, this is this is this is something I've never seen before. This is now something I have to go. I have to go find because you're it, right. This is a awesome cover. They're out there. I, I think it wasn't a big seller. And I think a lot were returned and resold, uh, as we've heard from Chuck about affidavit returns <laughs> somehow getting back out there. So you can find a copy fairly easy. Don't overpay for it. But it's just it's beautiful. All right. We're not going to have one for sale this Friday, but we'll have lots more for sale at our live sale. <laughs> This Friday, February 4th at 8 p.m. Eastern, 5 p.m. Pacific on the Bronze and Modern Gods Instagram page, profile, whatever you want to call it. Uh, but if, in the meantime, make sure you like us on Facebook. Make sure you like us on Instagram. If you like this video, hit like, subscribe, help us out. That would be awesome. Hit the notification bell. And we will see you later this week. All right. Everybody stay safe.